You're listening to the Better Two Podcast with DM Needham. Donna here. Thanks for tuning into the Better Two podcast. Today's guest is Trisha Ruse. She is a Dallas-based ex-volleyball coach, and she has a story about her second pregnancy. Her second pregnancy, she was told at a certain point when she, after doing a blood test, that her child was going to have some issues, that it had trisomy 18, which unlike trisomy 21, which is the genetic coding for Down syndrome, this coding said that the baby would not make it. So she had to make a choice whether she wanted to carry the baby to term and see what happens or to abort. But for her, there was only one choice and that was to take the journey and to see, as she said, Annabelle's life meant something. So we explore that. And it's a, it's a very interesting conversation because we talk about grief and we talk about the fact that how do you explain to your child at three years old, that yes, I'm going to have a baby, but she may not make it. So it's a very deep and meaningful conversation. Um, as always, I appreciate you tuning in. If you want to follow the podcast, I'm on Twitter at better2podcast.com. We also have an Instagram account and we have a Facebook page. All the links are in the bio. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode and thanks for tuning in. Hi, Tricia. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you. So you are outside of Dallas or you, are you in Dallas proper or? Yeah, we are in Dallas. We are in East Dallas. So I'm very close to White Rock Lake and the Arboretum. So is it still very warm down there? No, we finally got fall. So I think it's been in the seventies and low eighties, but last week it almost hit a hundred. So we're probably not out of the woods yet, but today is a fall day. So I'll take it. Even for us up here, we're in the 70s, which is really abnormal. Normally by now we are in the 50s. So it has definitely been a, a different year. <laughs> yeah. So you have a very intriguing story. You were a volleyball coach, correct? Correct. And you've won many state champions, but that's not really what your story is about. Your story is about you, your pregnancy, you wanting to be a mom. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I spent 16 years as the director of admissions and head volleyball coach at a large Catholic school here in Dallas. And we had a child in 2011, a little boy. And when he was about three and a half, he started asking for a lady baby, which um, his toddler translation was that he wanted a baby sister. And, um, you know, I had grown up with a sister. My husband had a sibling. So we both, you know, had discussed the idea of another child um, so that our son could have a sibling. And so we got pregnant in 2014 and everything was going really well. But then at the 12 week visit, my doctor proposed doing a blood test so that we could find out gender early. And I'm a planner. I thought that was a great idea and it was super easy. So after that, um, I didn't think much of it. And about a week and a half later, she called back and said that it was a girl, but that also um, the panel had shown that she tested positive for trisomy 18. Um, and everybody knows Down syndrome, but Down syndrome is also called trisomy 21. Uh, so trisomy 18 is very similar to Down syndrome, but typically those babies have more severe heart defects, not always, but a lot of times. And so she sent us to a specialist to confirm the diagnosis. And when he did, um, he recommended us to terminate the pregnancy. And so much was going on and swirling in my head in that moment because we found all of this out within a 24-hour period. Um, and we were just really lost and broken. I mean, what do you do, you know? And so uh, I we took off some time from work and we decided that um, we wanted to see where this journey would take us and that we would keep the pregnancy. And even if she may not make it full term, which they only thought she would have a 10% chance of me making it full term and being alive. We were willing to just seek out um, 
you know, for us, it was just God's plan for her life instead of our own. And what happened in those next few months, my team rallied together and won a state championship and did it in honor of Annabelle and for our family. And it was just a bunch of teenagers acting completely selfless for a common goal. And then she was born alive at uh, Baylor Hospital, and she was the first live trisomy 18 birth that any of the doctors and nurses had encountered. And she only lived six days. Uh, but I remember, you know, those moments with fondness of getting to introduce her to our whole family and meeting her brother. And although it was really hard losing her, uh, we just felt like it was really um, an incredible experience. Although it was the sad, saddest moment of my life, having her die in my arms, there was just so much more good that came out of it. Uh, that, there's so many questions and it, it's a journey for you that I can imagine was heartbreaking. How, you know, getting that news, I understand you want to go on and you want to make sure that this, you want to give her the best shot you have. You don't want to just end something because you never know. I mean, just because somebody tells you what they think is going to happen does not mean it's going to happen. So was that thought always in the back of your head that I don't know how long I'm going to have her? I mean, yeah, what's really weird is that when you're told during pregnancy that your baby will likely die, uh, it's like you're grieving before the grief happens. Like you're grieving the loss when you still have the child. Um, but in a lot of ways, it also just helped me mentally and emotionally prepare myself because I had to kind of set myself up for all expectations, like a stillbirth or for me to be induced and go into labor, maybe at 20 weeks or 30 weeks, or maybe we would make it full term. And then we had to think, well, if she does make it and then how long and what kind of care will we need to provide for her? And, and I think in pregnancy, you know, they learn a lot as they go, but so many things really early on are kind of uncertain because the baby is so small. So we did learn a little bit later on that she had a two chamber heart instead of four chambers. So for anyone that's taken ninth grade biology, you are supposed to have four chambers and they were deeming it impossible for her to breathe and be alive outside of the womb. Yet she lived for six days and she was never labored in her breathing. She basically lived on my chest for those days. And um, they call it kangaroo care. I had never heard of it before where they just put the baby on the mom's chest to regulate heart rate and breathing. And that worked for her. We never had to use any kind of intervention. And I mean, it was just a little miracle baby. And like I said, the fact that we got to meet her, the fact that I got to meet her in itself just made it all worth it. And it just made us have some closure also, I think is a good word for it. Because we did get to spend the time with her and with our family and introduce her to everyone. And I mean, that has helped me in the healing process over the last several years, because I knew I, I gave it my all. I did everything I could for her. How was it explaining it to your son? That was a little hard because he was only three and a half years old. And so we prepared him during pregnancy that she might not get to stay with us. And we try to keep it really simple that Annabelle may be born not healthy or unhealthy and that if she's not healthy, God may have to take her back and go back to heaven so that she can be healed. And of course he's three and he's like, okay, but like, she's still going to come see us. I still get to meet her. And so we tried to prepare him that he may not get to meet her. Well, then when she was born alive and he got to meet her, he thought automatically, well, now she's here to stay. And so, you know, he thought, okay, well, that first scenario you told me didn't happen. Now she's here and now I get to keep her. And what ended up happening was we did bring her home from the hospital. I mean, on day four, I was released and she started having apnea episodes, which is what they expected where, especially when she was sleeping, her body would forget to breathe and it wasn't painful. She just would stop breathing. And when we started noticing more of those apnea episodes, we felt like we really needed to get him to the grandparents' house. Um, and so we did get him uh, over there and then she died at home, I think the next day. And so I remember him running back into the house 
and looking for her and trying to find her and us, us having to explain what happened. And that probably was more devastating than anything because he just couldn't comprehend it. But what was amazing about him as a little three-year-old boy was that to him, it just was black and white. And he came very to say, okay, she wasn't, God just had to heaven and she is. And even as he's gotten older, my son is 10 now, 10 and a half. If someone asks him how many siblings he has, he always says two sisters, one in earth and one on heaven. And it's very matter of fact for him. And I've noticed, um, you know, he's a lot more aware now. And so we were in the waiting room of a doctor's appointment about a month ago and he saw a little boy with Down syndrome. And he immediately recognized that there were differences. And he asked me, is that what Annabelle would have been like? And I said, yes, she would have been a lot like that little boy. And he just smiled and played with him. And he's realizing, you know, obviously she was different, but he loves that. And he's very compassionate to children with disabilities. And he hasn't had many encounters, but I just feel like there's something in him that is different in a good way because of what he experienced and not in a bad way. Well, usually, I mean, they always say that whatever we go through teaches us our life lessons, teaches us compassion, teaches us empathy. And maybe that's an experience at three that he needed to, to set him on this path, to set him down and make him look at the world differently. Well, and uh, at our church, they did a little video on our story after Annabelle was born and died. And then they just recently did a follow-up. They did another video since now I have a book out. And the one thing I told the guy who did the video was, I would like you to mark your calendar and come back and do a video in 15 years of my son. Because at that point, he'll be 25. And I really believe that his life will be molded, like perhaps the career he chooses or certain paths that he takes because of his sister's life. And he may be a doctor that cures you know, something, he may be a special needs teacher, he may just have, you know, a calling to be a helpful person and more compassionate person in this world. But I really believe that he's going to have tremendous good impact. And one thing that was um, really hard for me to hear was the doctor who recommended the abortion said, don't you want your son to have a sibling? This may be too hard for him. Why don't you just get rid of the baby and move on for his sake? And I thought that's not a very good way to think or live. Um, and I wrote him a letter afterwards about her life and how much meaning it had to us to let him know some perspective from that situation. And I just, I've thought about that a lot being told that. And I thought so much about the wonderful impact she had on my son. And that that's a really powerful message to share that you shouldn't shield your kids from going through something hard. And just like you said, your life experiences that are probably the hardest are what teaches you the best lessons. Although it's a hard journey and there's tears and there's pain, you always get, you know, hopefully something good out of it. When, when my grandfather died, he was rushed to the hospital. And the reason I'm bringing this up is we were in the waiting area and I think it was about 12. And... My mom was, you know, the nurse is like, well, we're going to clean him up and then we'll bring him back and you guys can say goodbye. And my mom's like, I don't want her to go. And the nurse is like, it'll be okay. She should see him. And I mean, at 12, that's a pretty, you know, that, that's pretty, a pretty good age. You should realize things. And I mean, I'm going to be at the funeral anyway, and I'm going to see him in a coffin. And they were right because going into that room, he was completely cleaned up. He looked like he had a sheet on. He looked, other than the incision, he looked like he was asleep. There was no damage for me seeing that. Mm -hmm. And even, even the worst traumas you go through, while we would like to spare our kids from those traumas, sometimes those traumas are, are what shapes us and, and gives us the gumption to be able to stand in our own power. Yeah. You know? I agree with that. I you know, I've been through a divorce of my parents and the loss of a child. I mean, I can, obviously, we all can. We can point back to really difficult times in our life that we went through. But the fact that you made it through and you learned some lessons and you learned from it. And that's kind of what I took away from this was I feel like there has to be a higher purpose. And to me, that higher purpose was 
like cherishing her life as short as it was and knowing that it, it can have as much purpose and value as yours and mine. Because the impact that I feel like I've gotten to have on, you know, that community and sharing her stories, especially with doctors and nurses, they're trained in um, their medical literature that trisomy 18 is incompatible with life. That's what it says. But we proved otherwise. We proved that this little baby, despite all the crazy things that were surrounding her situation, that her life had value and she was this beautiful little child. And and I didn't want anyone to sugarcoat anything for me. Like, I get it. She's going to die. We're not having open heart surgery. We're not doing any crazy interventions. She's three pounds with a two-chamber heart. But I just wanted that time to, like, cherish her and to get to meet her and introduce her and and be with her and take care of her because that's what a mother wants to do. You just want to take care of your child. And I knew that she would die but I know with my whole heart that choosing to have an abortion early on and not giving that opportunity for me to get through the pregnancy and get to know her and her kicks and get to meet her and see her. I mean, yeah, she still died. It was still a sad story. But I think sad stories can have happy endings because in the end, I mean, I know that my family and all of us are better for knowing her and for going through that experience with me. How hard was it? I mean, I know you have, how long did it, how hard and how long did it take you to tell other people such as your family? I mean, when you found out the news, I know your husband and you talked about it, I'm sure, but how long before you told everybody else that, yes, I'm, I'm pregnant, but here's the facts. And how did you broach that conversation? Yeah, it was probably, I don't know if this is normal, but we went full speed ahead to tell everybody at once very quickly because, you know, pregnancy is very physical. And and I think a part of it was my job. So in the admissions world, you're meeting about a thousand new families every year. And then you finish that admission season and then you do it again. And then it was kind of like that in the volleyball world. I mean, my team would play 40 or 50 matches. I was traveling, I was seeing other coaches, other girls, teenagers, new kids coming in, freshmen. And I think I had this really big fear that I'm going to have to tell the story 5,000 times and I'm not going to keep myself together and I'm going to be trying to be at work and be on the volleyball court and then it's going to hit me and I'm going to break down. And so I actually composed an email and just put it all out there. Like, here's the story. This is what I found out. This is what the doctors have said. This is our decision. Um, we're going to continue this pregnancy. Yes, I know that it could end tomorrow or I could make it full term. Yes, I would have to deliver her and I would go immediately on maternity leave if that happened because I needed like even my volleyball team to know I may be here for you for a week or the whole season. I have no idea. And, you know, I think a lot of times that's how, especially I worked in a high school, that's how rumors get started. And so I kind of always felt like the best policy is to just put it all out there and be really honest. So that way, when people are talking amongst each other, there's no holes to fill in. Trisha told us everything. These were the facts. And, you know, initially, I remember the first practice I came to once the news was out and no one could make eye contact with me. I, I had to go through this really awkward period. And I was like, no, I want everybody to look at me in the eye and you're not going to feel sorry for me. I want volleyball practice to be fun and energetic. And I need you to put it all out there because this is my time when I can escape, you know, from what's going on. And once I had that honest talk, I mean, these kids, they made practice so fun and so energetic. And again, if you've ever been around a teenage girl, there tends to be some whining and some complaining and, and they wouldn't allow any of that in practice. And if you think about kind of the principles of being a successful team member or um, in a business or like on a team in a sport, that selflessness, that work ethic, that, um, you know, looking out for others and caring and kindness, those all play a part in being successful. And I watched these teenage girls just like take over and um, make this an amazing opportunity to be kind and have no drama. And then we won a state championship like it was easy. 
And that's a goal that, you know, many coaches in their lifetime never get to see and many athletes in their lifetime never get to accomplish. And we did it like it was easy because all of a sudden we were playing for something bigger than ourselves. And uh, I think writing about that really kind of put life in perspective uh, about how that's really what we're all in this about is for being there for other people and um, caring about others and being selfless and kind of that don't sweat the small thing. And of course, you never want to compromise your values or who you are um, for the good of the team. You want to still, you know, be true to yourself. But it was really cool how um, that all came together. Well, and I think when you, you were talking about taking the drama out of the, you know, practices and everything, when you're taking out, dare I say, because I played volleyball in junior high, when you take out the politics of who's got this, who's going to keep making this, you take all that out, then you really do have that that teamwork because yeah. nobody's better than anybody else and we can come together that way. I mean, that's the one thing. Sometimes when we play team sports, somebody becomes a star and everybody else kind of gets slighted and they, it gets awkward. This yeah. way you had all that cut out. Yeah. And, so, and that was like the biggest amazing lesson was just cut out all that BS and all that stuff and just play the game. And again, they weren't doing it for themselves anymore. They were, and I, I had talked with them. I'm like, look, my doctor said my blood pressure is high. Like you better not even make a game close. Like I need you to be so focused that you win by a lot and you just take control so that I can sit here and smile and that my blood pressure doesn't go up. And I was kind of joking, but I was not also joking because that was a serious conversation I had with my doctor on a regular basis because I was very pregnant during volleyball season. And they took that so seriously. They're like, got it. We can't mess around. Like we better win every point that we can because we don't want you to be stressed. We don't want the baby to incur any extra stress. And um, it was great motivation for those kids to just, again, have to focus on something besides themselves. Well, and, you know, your story, when you think about it, I'm sure your team, after you had the baby, after having Annabelle, I, I'm sure that was a lesson for them as well. That mm -hmm. even though her life was short, it still had value to you and to your family. And that had to, that had to show them the bigger picture of life. Well, I said this in an interview um, for the local WFAA affiliate during my pregnancy was, all I've done for you know 20 years of my life now is coach kids to give it their all and try their best and just put it all out there on the court. And whether you win or lose, you can still be proud if you put forth your best effort. I mean, that's what I preach, right? That's what you tell your athletes. Just give it your best shot. And I felt like that was kind of my challenge was I'm being asked to not just talk about it, but walk through this journey. And just give it my best effort. And whether that means she's born and she's it's a stillbirth and she's not alive, I'm just going to do what I can. I'm going to try to, like I said, keep my blood pressure down and eat healthy and, you know, keep myself less stressed for her behalf. And then when she's alive, whatever she needs, I will do my best to provide for her. And then you walk away from a situation, and this is applicable in all things in life, with no regret. Because I think the worst thing in life is to have regrets about something. I wish I would have done this or I could have done this better. Why didn't I give it my all when I had the opportunity? And although it's taken me years to write about it and talk about it without crying or, you know, there was a lot of things I had to work through in terms of the grief and the loss. Even at the time I was going through it, I just didn't have regrets and I still don't have regrets. And even though I can't say it feels good um, because it was still a hard time in my life, that part, at least there was closure and it felt good to know that I, I did try my best for her. There's something, you know, you're talking about grief and there's something, you knowing grief and you were talking about the fact that you were grieving before she ever came into this world and before she ever passed. And that's a feeling that I can relate to and empathize with because... I was told my husband was on borrowed time. I mean, I knew he had been sick for a long time, but when, when the doctor told me and didn't tell him that he was on borrowed time, 
it hit home. And, and I remember telling the doctor, one of his doctors, I'm like, you need to tell him this. I don't want to be the one to tell him. And because of that, I started grieving before he ever passed. Mm-hmm. I was already in touch with those feelings before he passed. Did it make it easier when he passed? Slightly. And, and I'll say this, and I'm sure in your own experience with grief, the first year is hard, but I think yeah. it gets a little harder as it really comes into settle. Yeah. You know, that first year, yeah, you have all those first milestones of, of what would have been. Yep. But the second year, you know, now it's, it's final. It's not, there's no changes. This is just, this is your life now. Yeah. And so it's a harder process, but we never really talk about the second year of grief. We always talk about the first year and we count those days and yeah. And what I realized, so for me, it's almost been seven years. Um, I had a hard time and I don't know why particularly, but at five years, um, it's, and, and part of it, I did go to a therapist around that time because I was really struggling. And I think because I was in a high school, if you think about the life cycle of a high school, all of those students knew me and knew my story, right? And all those teachers. Well, then they were all gone in four years. The youngest kids were out of high school by year five. And I felt like, and I, I couldn't um, pinpoint this until a therapist did it for me. But she was like, you're none of these people know your background and your story. And I think for anyone that's like you lost a spouse or lost someone, the more time goes by and like, say, you know, your friend circle changes a little bit or your acquaintances become new. Part of me is like, they don't know that side of me. They don't know me before Annabelle and after or how she's shaped my life. And it doesn't mean you can't have close relationships with people over time after a tragedy has happened. But it really felt a little weird to me that a lot of people I was surrounded with, like my own entire volleyball team and a lot of my coaches and a lot of the people in my department had just naturally turned over and they didn't know Trisha as a grieving mom. And so when some of those uh, feelings came back, I didn't know who to go to because I was like, well, it'd be awkward if I tell this person I'm having a bad day because of the daughter I lost because they didn't even know me back then. And so I hid a lot of things. I think I avert a lot of grief on my own in private. And I think it's really important to know if you have that happen five years, seven years, 10 years, I've heard 10 years is a hard one. That's okay. And it doesn't matter if people in your life now didn't know you then. I know now better that those people can still understand me and be there for me. For some reason, I had this thing in my mind that... um only the people that knew me during that time could really understand me. And that's just not true. I mean, people, if they're really your friends, can relate to you and help you through any circumstance. Very true. I mean, we all have, it may not be the exact same experience, but most of us have lost somebody. Most of us mm-hmm. has, ex- have, has experienced grief. And I cannot talk this morning. I have not had enough caffeine, obviously. Uh, but most people have experienced grief in some form or fashion, whether it be a parent, a grandparent, a friend, you know, and doing the podcast, it's like, I lost my mom to suicide 30, 30 years ago this year. And, you know, it's amazing. And it's a sad, amazing thing that there's so many people that are either have lost somebody to suicide or they have contemplated it. Yeah. And I have talked to many and it's, it's really, it's something that's relatable that you don't really, we don't have a conversation about. We don't want to talk about somebody dying in su- of suicide. Yeah. And it's the same thing with, you know, as, as your son gets older. And I mean, even you now, I'm sure that's that whole family history questionnaire of, you know, for your sons, like siblings. Yeah. You know, it's, it's those weird times that you don't think about. It's like, I remember the first time after my husband died, it's like, so, you know, marital status. Oh, so now I have to, you don't think about those things. And it's the same thing with family history. When my mom died, it's like, okay, so family history, mother, dead. How? Now it's become more acceptable, but 30 years ago, people look at you like, wow. Yeah. Well, and um, those are some trigger moments too. 
And that's where it can get hard. Um, and I, and I've tried with my kids, like we have kept her memory alive and we've made it very matter of fact, like she's in heaven, we're on earth. And, and I have witnessed both of my children, even my youngest who never knew Annabelle. Um, she's told people she has an older sister in heaven and Cameron has always told people he has two sisters. And I do think that, um, we have to train our kids how to grieve and understand that loss is a part of life because I have experienced those that act totally awkward about it. Right. Or, or they just like act like it never happened. Or if Cameron says that they don't want to ask any questions, they're like, okay, well, we're just moving on now. And that should be okay. It should be okay to talk about things like that because that's a part of our lives. And I just think that it may, if kids are, you know, shut like hidden from grief and from loss and they're sheltered, what's going to happen when they're adults and they have to experience it, you know, firsthand. I think it's a lot easier to have those conversations with kids the right way, the healthy way, instead of hiding it because it's just a part of life. It is what it is. I think, you know, when you're, you're talking about education here and as a form of grief, I think they also need to learn how to hand, be able to handle stress better yeah. too. You know, there's got to be ways for them to be able to manage their stress because, you know, you're not as old as I am, but still you grew up not so high strung. I'm sure your yeah. life was not as complicated as now. I mean, now it's like, oh, look, I got my cell phone. I'm on the latest app. I have this. And it's like, okay, Did, <laughs> I hit, I hit a hundred thousand followers. All right, that's gonna get you where? Yeah, yeah, and and today you may be big, but tomorrow you're gonna crash. And how do you deal with the mental game of that? It, yeah, and I'm sure being in the school and having children, you you see that. So here's a here's a question for you: When it came time to decide that you were gonna have another kid, how did that go? I mean, did you were you fearful, or was it just I'm gonna do we're gonna do this and it's gonna be fine, or Yeah. It so two parts. It was I wanted to have another child like pretty shortly after because of my age, and I really did want Cameron to have a sibling to grow up with, and uh, I didn't want to wait for that. And so we did get pregnant about six months after she passed away. But what I didn't realize would happen is that I was more scared, more conscientious, and just doubtful. Like I'm like, there's no. I can't believe that it's healthy. Like there, there still might be something, there might be a twist. There still could have something could go wrong. Like you live in that. I did not have that with my first pregnancy. It was like, Oh, I don't know. People just have babies and they come out. It's fine. It's easy. And so there was definitely, um, you know, we were still in this grieving process, but then we were, you know, excited about another pregnancy. One emotion I didn't really realize what happened was a lot of guilt because we didn't have a baby shower for Annabelle because we were told she wouldn't live. And I'm very frugal. I'm like, I don't want people spending money on a lot of things if it's not going to be needed. And we still had a lot of the things we would have needed for Cameron, our older son. So we're like, we're fine. We at least have a car seat. We can get her home and we can play it by ear. We do not need to have a baby shower. Well, then with Andy, my last one, it's like everybody's throwing baby showers and presence galore and it was this huge celebration and I I remember being at a baby shower and like opening all these amazing gifts and almost just crying and like wanting to hide in a corner because I felt bad for Annabelle I felt like I was doing something that was disrespectful towards her and so it took me a while to allow it to be okay to, to celebrate the new child coming into our life and that those pregnancies were just very different circumstances and you did have to treat the circumstances differently. Um, and, and I wouldn't have changed a thing. I mean, I don't want people throwing a huge party and buying me all these gifts if it wasn't, you know, something that I would use. Um, so there were some weird things that occurred that I guess I didn't expect to happen and some feelings, but, but we did really want to have another child. And, you know, I was, I guess I was 34 and I I just thought, okay, I don't know how long it would take um, to have another baby. So like, let's have another baby as soon as we can. And so we did. 
Yeah. The amazing, the amazing story about this is that you were fear, you know, even though you had the stress, you were still fearless in doing it. I mean, some people would have said, well, I'm not doing this right away. There was another lady I talked to in Great Britain months ago. She was on the very first season and she went through an infertility journey of, I think she tried six times. She lost, she had six miscarriages and yet she's still, and she was told by people, you're not, this one's not going to work. Da, da, da. And finally it did. Yeah. You know, and, and that goes back to what we we're saying earlier. Just because somebody says you're not going to do this doesn't mean you aren't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's emotionally difficult. But again, it kind of, it really came back to that coaching, like try your best and go for it. Right. I mean, I would always coach my athletes under pressure situation. And when the game matters, that's when you swing hard. That's when you serve hard. Like don't have regrets, just go for it. And, and, I, and, and we knew we wanted another child and we wanted to try again. And, you know, my sister experienced a couple of miscarriages um, pretty far along last year. But then, you know, same thing. That third one, she now has a four month old and she's a perfectly healthy little baby girl. And, you know, the emotional roller coaster of that, you know, you have to immediately grieve the loss and go through a lot of physical pain and turmoil and then it's like okay let's we gotta try again and get back on the horse let's go like we've got to have a baby and that's really hard and it's very difficult if you don't communicate well with your spouse and with your family because you could be on very different pages and you know there could be a lot of things that um could even go wrong after that you know i have a girlfriend that recently had a miscarriage and she kind of confided in me that her husband was ready right away. And she's like, I need time. I am like, she was pretty far along and, you know, had to do a DNC and emotionally she couldn't handle it. And I said, well, then you need to be honest with him. And she, she was like scared to talk to him about it because he wanted a, another baby so bad. And luckily my husband and I talked about those things and we got on the same page. We both wanted to have another baby and we were okay with trying again, you know, soon. Um, but when you talk about better to, it's always better to communicate or even over communicate because so many things happen in our head yeah. and we're thinking one thing and then maybe your spouse is thinking another thing. And if you're totally on different pages and the farther you go down in your mind, those two different pathways, when you finally do communicate, I mean, you're in left field and I'm in right field. Then how do we get back to center field? I mean, it can get pretty impossible. So I mean, I'm glad we communicated through um, that whole journey. It has a lot to do with expectations. I mean, if you're not on the same page, your expectations aren't going to be met. And then your marriage is going to suffer. And hopefully you can survive it. But in not all cases, you can. No. And, you know, the miscarriage thing, I had a friend's friend's daughter who her friend, she baby, baby made it till eight months. And then she went into labor a little bit premature and the baby was born still born because the umbilical cord had wrapped mm -hmm. around its neck. Yeah. But the thing is, we don't, we don't talk about what goes back to the grief conversation. We don't talk about miscarriage. We don't talk about that loss because I had a lady who she's lost two husbands and she's like, people don't know how to deal with it. It's like yeah. when you were saying about the, the girls in your, your volleyball team, they didn't know how to handle or react because it's a foreign feeling. And that's where we do really have to, just like mental health, we're trying to make that more of a normal, embraceable thing. We yeah. also need to do that with grief. Well, and just like, so one thing I realized um, with the girls that I coach, some of them, clearly their parents had maybe, if you will, trained them better because they could talk to me, even though they were 16 years old and be like, Coach Ruth, how is your day going? Are you having a bad day? How's the baby doing? Is, is Annabelle doing okay? They were um, like confident enough and aware enough that it was okay to ask those questions. But even adults in my life, you know, coworkers, they, they didn't even want to ask a thing about my pregnancy because especially men sometimes, right? They're just like, hey, Trisha, and then like run by. Yeah. And I tried really hard to be honest, like to just bring it up first because I don't want it. I didn't want it to be awkward. And the same thing happens, you know, as I'm public speaking and, and I have a book out in the world, 
I want it to be okay that we talk to our kids honestly about family situations and death and dying because I've lost a grandpa and two step parents in the last few years and that affected my son. And we had to have those conversations. I didn't want to lie and say, oh yeah, grandpa's doing great when he's on hospice about to die. I wanted to tell him what was age appropriate, but what was honest so that he could be prepared. And yeah, he cried and he was sad and he asked a lot of questions about all of those losses, but I didn't sugarcoat it. You know, I told him about what Alzheimer's was and I told him about what Parkinson's was and I told him about cancer. I mean, those were the things that were affecting my family and that affect people every day. And that and his lot people that so describe the and you know, it is helpful to at least Google like how do you talk to your kid about Parkinson's or dementia or you know the deterioration of you know a grandparent. I'm not a psychiatrist or a therapist. I needed to learn some terminology, but it's not rocket science. Be honest and and keep it simple and keep it age appropriate. And kids are resilient, and we shouldn't hide things from them. Um, I mean, some things you don't want your kids to know about quite yet, right? But right. still. Death and dying is part of life and it will always be. And so address it appropriately. Well, you know, the one thing that nobody can ever prepare you for is death. And I'm going to, I'll say this bluntly. I mean, nobody prepared me, even though I had that, that ticking time of he's on borrowed time. I picked him up. It was perfectly normal. We stopped somewhere because he thought his sugar was going low. We were parked because the food wasn't ready. Thank goodness the food wasn't ready because otherwise I'd have been in rush hour traffic. And he died in the car mm. right next to me. Nobody prepares you for that moment. No. And there's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of stress. And we had the dog in the back of the car. But if I would have had a child in the back of the car, how how do you even fathom if you don't talk to your child about this? How do you even explain this to them? Yep. So, I mean, I think there's certain things that we really need to be have more honest conversations about. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, any situation, I love to be prepared in advance. So even if I always told my OB, especially with my first pregnancy, even if, you know, you have to tell me some terrible things, this is going to really hurt bad, or this is how the C-section is going to feel, or this is how labor feels, be honest and be upfront so that I can emotionally and mentally prepare for that. And I feel like we sugarcoat, you know, death and dying and we sugarcoat certain things to our kids. Um, and again, some things they're not ready for because of their age, but we still need to be honest and allow them to experience tough things. You know, especially being in the sports world, I mean, kids these days, they don't want to see their parents. I mean, parents don't want to see their kids you know, not get enough playing time. They don't want them on the bench. They don't want them upset. They don't want them to lose. They don't want them to have any negative feelings. And I'm like the exact opposite. I mean, if Cameron's on the bench, I'm like, well, buddy, I don't know. Work harder. Get out in the yard and throw the ball more. What do you need from us? We're your parents. We'll support you. And um, if it's your batting or if it's your fielding, we'll, we'll help you get in a clinic to make you better. And and it's like that with anything with him. We're like, he's sad about, you know, a grade. Okay, well, you need to go into tutoring early. We'll get you to school earlier in the morning. Do you need to talk to your teacher? I'm not going to talk to your teacher. You talk to your teacher. Are you not understanding something? Like, ask questions. And so many people are the exact opposite. They go straight into the teacher. Why did you give my son this grade? Why doesn't he have the opportunity to make it up? And they go straight to the coach. It's happened to me a million times. Why is my kid on the bench? My kids should be starting. And I'm like, wow, this is really going to set them up for a lot of things later in life that they're going to need a therapist for. I, I remember um, my brother-in-law, He they had a son that they adopted. And I remember going over there with, when the Wii came out. And they invited us over there. We're playing Wii. And somebody else was beating. First of all, he was scamming the game so he could win. Yeah. And then once the adults figured out how to do it, and actually beat him, he hands the remote to his mom. I'm not playing anymore. 
It's mm-hmm. like, okay. He couldn't change the batteries. And he was like 10 or 11, couldn't change the batteries, had to have an adult do it. I'm thinking, come on. I, yeah, I mean, and then the, the real topper was, so he, a new video game was coming out. So they let him skip school, what took him to Best Buy at midnight, and he could skip school the next day to play the video game. And I thought yeah. to myself, how, talk about instant gratification and what are you setting him up for in the future and how is he going to be able to handle work we had a conversation once about working because um, the hubby had worked at wendy's my brother-in-law worked at a restaurant and i worked at mcdonald's and we're talking about how we had to clean the bathrooms and stuff and he looks at us at 11 and says well why isn't the manager doing that <laughs> exactly and we're all kind of like mm, that's not the way life works but yeah. If you're not letting your kids, if you're always fighting, number one, the kids battle, Yeah. how are they learning? And if they're not, if they think that everything is going to be okay, how are they going to handle the real world? They won't. They will have a therapist and they will have severe anxiety and they'll be on medication. I mean, and, and I feel like I played every sport I've been through a lot of times and it's still hard for me to navigate this world, right? Um, and I know how to fight for something and I know adversity really well. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot of lessons out of that. And, um, and I had to learn over time, you know, what I could tell Cameron and how much, you know, with me releasing a book at first, I was so proud and I was so excited and he really wanted to read it. Well, I find him in his room, a couple of chapters in just bawling in tears. And in that moment, it wasn't about like making him tough and reading it. It was, it's too early. It's not time. Because, you know, you have to keep in mind, he was three and a half when all of this happened. He had no idea the behind the scenes that goes on and, you know, just all the things that happened during our life during that time. And as a 10-year-old, I just don't think he's ready. Um, And it was a little bit emotional for him. And we talked through it. And we said, you know what? Why don't you put mommy's book down? I signed it for him. He's excited. He's told all his teachers he has a signed autographed copy of his mom's book. He's told all his teachers about the book. They've all bought the book because of Cameron being my salesman. But it's not time for him to read it yet. There are too many things that I think are a little bit above his head still, especially about you know being told to abort a pregnancy and, and just some of the things that happen that are just not, he's not ready for. And so in that moment, I kind of realized, all right, this is an opportunity for me to learn a lesson that it's not time. I will reintroduce it again at another time. But um, he's not emotionally ready for this. And that's okay. I think, though, it's it's smart that you have this written and he, you can hand it to him. Because whether whether you think he had trauma during that time, I'm sure there is some trauma because he lost somebody. Yeah. And, you know, back to something you were saying the kids having a therapist. I don't, I had a therapist because my parents split. I'm not going to knock therapy. It's just the fact that I don't think we're preparing kids to even handle rejection. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a problem. If they don't understand rejection or what it's like to lose, everybody gets a trophy. Yeah. You know, I got a trophy. Yeah. Okay. But I didn't always get a trophy and that was okay. Yeah. I survived. You're right. You're right. I survived. So how is it being a mom in this world nowadays? Um, You know, I have a boy and a girl here on earth, so 10 and 5, and they could not be more different human beings. Just, I mean, I've always wondered as like in my admissions job when a sibling would come around, I was like, how are you two related? You're not even similar at all. And now I'm living that life. And I have watched my son have little tantrums, you know, about losing and about striking out, you know, baseball, you make, you don't really get on base that much. Like a good hitting percentage is like 300, which means you only get on base 30% of the time. Right. And so to be honest, I think it's weird to say this, but I honestly enjoy watching him get through those failures. I know that we don't talk about it in the car on the way home, but later on we bring it up and we talk about how you could have maybe handled your emotions better. And I think he's learned a lot. He's learned a ton in the last couple of years. And now as my five-year-old gets into this world of sports and school, um, she's got that same competitive fire, but she reacts and responds very differently than he does. 
And uh, so it's fun for me to have like the coaching background to see like how they both respond to adversity and to pressure and um, to different, you know, things happening in game situations and trying to support them in navigating. You know, I, uh, I believe that my husband and I are on the same page about a lot of things about they're not allowed to have a cell phone, you know, as long as possible. I'm hoping to eighth grade at least, but um, we're trying to find like-minded friends to surround us with because we know if they're raising their kids the same way, it'll be easier for our kids to all hang out because there's not one person with a phone or allowed to have social media and then my son can't or my daughter can't. And so I, I have found that to be a really good thing is surrounding myself with like-minded parents um, that have kids the same age. Uh, but it's a really different world. I mean, I didn't get my cell phone until college and it was not real. I mean, it's nothing like it is today. You know, you didn't text, you just made calls and uh, didn't really grow up with the internet or a lot of technology until college. And so I'm young enough to be called a millennial, but I don't feel like that at all. And I feel like our generation of parents, um, we also want our kids to live a better life by not being surrounded by social media and video games and cell phones at such a young age, even though we have those things now. Well, and the thing you, you make mention of surrounding yourself with people that are like-minded and that's, that's something that's important because you can sit there and put parameters and say, okay, you're not playing this video game. You're not going to play this video game until you're way older. And then them going over to somebody's house that's my cat. And then going over to somebody's house and playing it. Yeah. You know, and that's such a hard battle because you're trying to set these rules and then they go to friends' houses and all the rules are broken. And immediately they're going to come back home and start realizing, why don't I have this? I want this. And then it creates fights and battles. So yeah, that was a lesson we learned pretty young because some kids were allowed to have a lot of things that my kids weren't at very young ages. And we immediately started navigating friend groups to be like, okay, where do we best fit with our expectations and our standards and other people's? I mean, I remember something as simple as my mom and I went to a movie, Postman Always Rings Twice. And there was a scene between Jessica Lange and Jack Nicholson that was very racy. And she shoved me in the bottom of the seat, put my hand, her hand over my eyes and a year later, this is, you know, it's on cable and I'm at my uncle's house and my uncle and everybody else is watching it and she's not there. And guess what? I watched it. And she was just, when she found out, she's like, I didn't want you to see that. And you saw it. Well, it was on. What are you? Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, as a parent, I respect the, the fact that you are willing to look at that and go, okay. You know, the other thing is, and I noticed this and I can get blasted and that's fine. Um, I remember watching my nieces and they were into the Disney channel. Mm -hmm. And when I had my two step kids, it was full house. We didn't have the Disney channel and, and the kids started getting sassy. They started mouthing and acting like the kids on TV. And I said, okay, we're not watching that anymore. Well, yep. why? Because you're picking up bad habits. And so fast forward to my going over to my sister-in-law's house to watch the girls and they're watching these Disney shows and the kids have mouths on them and everything else. And, it, and she's, all, and I mean, she's very conservative with how she wants her kids raised. Yeah. And I'm just sitting there going, how do you, you can you be conservative if these kids are, and I'm not saying the kids should not have voices because they yeah. should, but they also need to learn a little bit decorum manners, yeah. respect, and not, I mean, from what I saw at the Disney Channel, these kids were being nasty toward each other. And is that something well, that you really want? And that speaks to, like, being a parent in this day and age, that if Disney is still sassy, and they talk back to their parents, and they have attitudes, what else can we watch? I mean, so, like, luckily with a boy, you know, Dude Perfect is those dudes that just, like, do cool things. They like, you know, shoot a basketball off a building and try to make it in the hoop. And both of my kids watch that together. Um, they have bonded together on like American Ninja Warriors. Like we'll dabble in like an America's Got Talent, you know, because most of the time that's just clean 
But it's amazing to me because I don't remember that about now. My parents, they did not me to watch the Simpsons. You know, I wasn't allowed to watch um, like SpongeBob. There was a couple things that came out, but it seemed like there was, like you said, Full House. The music always changed at the end, and there was a moral to the story and a life lesson, and everybody apologizes and hugs and makes up. And that was like our TGIF. Mm-hmm. And you had those shows, and you got that life lesson out of it. There's no life lesson out of those Disney shows. They're just like sassing back to their parents. And these little teenagers have makeup and hair and jewelry. And I guess, it, you know, especially with a daughter now, when I walk in and she's, I'm thinking, oh, it's just Disney. Yeah, sometimes I have to walk in the room and I think, oh, it's just Disney. It's fine. And then after you listen a few minutes, you realize, okay, that's off the list. That show is no longer anything that you can watch because that little girl, and I'll explain it. I'll say that little girl is passing back to her mom and that is not allowed. You know that Andy. And she'll say, yes, ma'am. And you know, I'm watching and I'm like, why does this 12 year old in this show wear a crop top and makeup? You know, I mean, that's not what I want her seeing, but it's a little bit sad that that's Disney and that's supposed to be the safest thing for our kids. And it's not. Well, at a certain point, Disney got away from what Disney was when I was a kid. And I mean, we used to, have, the biggest thing we had on was Sunday night on Disney, you know, Disney had their little TV program on NBC. Yes, I'm yeah. aging myself horribly, but, you know, I mean, Disney back then was wholesome. Yeah. And it's not saying that everything has to be wholesome. I mean, at the same time, I have the kids. My sister-in-law sends me, this is for my first marriage. She sends me a videotape of Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> And as a parent, I watched this and I am mortified because I'm like, there's no way I would ever let my kid watch this now. And, and this is why I always, I always preface this. Your views as a parent are one set and your views as a non-parent are completely different in what you'll accept to watch. Yeah. Because after I, my husband and I split, I watched Beavis and Butthead with one of my friends and I'm like, this is pretty funny. But <laughs> you don't think about it. And I mean, there were certain TV shows I wasn't allowed to watch. and when I look back, my husband was like, well, my parents would never let me watch Three's Company. And I looked and I, I laughed because my mom didn't have a problem with that. But yet she shoved me, she take me to a rated R movie, which she shouldn't have done to begin with and shoved me down in the seat. Yeah. So yeah. parenting nowadays, and I think it's, it's only going to get harder because you have a smartphone and they can watch whatever they want. I was in a conversation with somebody and they were talking about eight-year-old boys watching porn. And terrifying. Yeah. Because you're, you're setting expectations up for these kids that they have no idea what they're looking at. And this is like what they're going to expect to see and what they expect in that part of their lives. So, exactly. so are you still coaching or is that now? Well, uh, yeah, I kind of took a total life change. So um, in late April, I left my job um, with the admissions and, and head coaching to finish the book, get the book out in the world. I'm doing public speaking and it's kind of a mixed audience. I mean, I'm talking to high schools and colleges a lot about kind of following God's will for your life over your own and about how you can turn tragedy into hope because I think that's a big message for youth. Um, Also um, like nursing schools, I'm reaching out to a lot of medical schools because I really think that as a patient perspective, having a child that was terminally ill there's definitely a right and a wrong way to approach us as parents. And uh, I just think there needs to be a little bit more training around that area in some ways. Um, and then speaking at some women's conferences. So I'm, I'm public speaking and selling the book. And then uh, I'm also consulting. So that was kind of my end back in the volleyball world. I'm working for a volleyball club and consulting for them. It's a young program, a lot of teams, a lot of great young coaches. And since I've coached for 20 years, I get to come in and coach the coaches and help develop curriculum. And so instead of having my own team that I'm just with all the time and kind of ignoring my own family, I'm kind of on the back end and creating the agendas and the curriculum and doing one-on-one calls with coaches to help them be better coaches. And so that's more on my own time and during business hours, as opposed to what my life was before. I mean, I was probably gone five to six nights a week because I had admissions events and I had volleyball games and it was just a lot. 
um, leaving my kids all the time with babysitters and my husband. So it's been a great life switch. And the book is called When Wishes Change. So I feel like that idea and the title is super applicable to a lot of what we just talked about because, you know, when something in your life that you wish for totally changes, you know, you could have caused it or not out of your control. Like, what do you do? What's next? How do you pivot? How do you make that into an opportunity? Or how do you, you know, navigate your way on a new journey and on a new path? And I think a lot of people just get paralyzed in that change and they don't know what to do and where to go and they don't know what to do with themselves. And others are better at that. And I think when you allow your wishes to change and embrace the change, um, you can get so much more out of life. And then you can also learn from that change and let it lead to better things. Well, fear usually is the, the catalyst in stopping people to, to make them not embrace those things. Yep. Um, so really, when you think about it, Annabelle really changed your life in many ways because now it, get, it has given you, I don't want to say a career, but it has. It has given you a career as a public speaker, as an author. And I mean, that is a gift. That's a gift that will keep her memory alive and keep keep you, you know, sharing your story to somebody else that may have gone through this trauma or yeah. is in the process of going through it. Yeah, or just going through a big life change and they're paralyzed and don't know what to do. I mean, I've learned my speaking engagement. I, I was speaking at a college a couple weeks ago and this girl came after and was like in tears. She's like, that message really spoke to me. My mom is dying of cancer. Well, that had nothing to do with me losing a child, but she could relate on the level that something had recently changed in her life that she did not expect. She didn't know how to deal with it. She didn't know how to deal with her grief. And she was trying to process, how can I support my mom, support my family and get through this myself? And, you know, and hearing some stories like that, I realized this message is really relatable to anybody. Um, because everybody is going through something or recently has gone through something or they have a loved one going through something difficult. So you're either on the end where you're trying to support that person. So like in part three of my book, I talk a lot about the right and wrong ways to help someone that's grieving um, and what not to say and what to say and kind of what I've learned over the last seven years. And then, you know, part one and part two is, is really the story. Um, but I felt that that was important to share and it's super vulnerable. It talks a lot about things that are really honest and some really hard things that we went through as a family. Um, but in the end, the point is that we fought through it. We saw these things as opportunities and we are still happy people and living our lives. And, and we were able to get through hard times together. That, which is an amazing thing. One of the most inappropriate things I have ever heard somebody say to somebody that was grieving, my dad had lost his, my stepmom. And within eight hours, my grandmother, his mom, slaps him on his back and says, Donnie, sometimes you just have to get over it. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. Well, she was 89 and she, he died, she died in my dad's arms right in front of my grandmother. But that's what my grandmother had to say. My grandmother was a, a, a pistol. Um, but yeah, that's like the most inappropriate thing I have ever heard anybody say. To anybody. Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. So where do you see yourself in five years? Do you, do you think you'll have a TED Talk? Do you aspire to have a TED Talk? Yeah, I mean, I really enjoy... I know in the moment right now, I really enjoy public speaking. I think I connect with audiences really well and I just love it. I mean, I didn't know if I would love it. And then I got up there and I know I love it. And I also feel like sharing the book is um, just a big part of what I'm being called to do. Uh, you know, as my kids get older, I, I also want to be a part of their lives in the right ways that I can be and um, guide them and direct them as they're navigating the difficulties of life and not feel like it's a babysitter or somebody else doing it for me. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know where I would be in five years, but I do know for the time being, I really want to pursue this career and I enjoy it. And I think there's just a lot of opportunities out there. I know that with COVID, things like big conferences kind of were on hold, but I've been to conferences. I've spoken in, in front of large groups. And I know that as human beings, we want to be together again. 
And I know that in my career, I loved going to conferences and whether it was through my church or through work, it's just a really good time to refresh and get some new perspective. And then it recharges your battery to go into whatever the next you know challenge is. And so I see that being something that I can do and, and something I can help a lot of groups and, and speak to a lot of different kinds of people in different realms. So for time being, I'd like to say, yes, I wholeheartedly hope that's what I'm doing in five years. But I'm open to like whatever, wherever life takes me and whatever opportunities, you know, feel like the right decision at the time. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, your website is whenwisheschange.com. I have all your other social media and your book is available on Amazon. Yep. And uh, is there anything you'd like to add? I mean, thanks for having me. I think it was, uh, it was fun to see like all the different ways the conversation went. But, you know, at the end of the day, I believe that, you know, everyone's life has purpose and value. And no matter the trial or the tragedy you're going through, like find help, find people, find community to push you through it or people that have been in the same situation as you have. And that could be me. Like feel free to reach out to me or anybody else um, because you will get through it stronger and better on the other end. Very true. Very true. I thank you for your time. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. So Trisha's story is a very powerful story and a very important story. And, you know, uh, it's a decision that some people are forced to make for whatever reason. I am pro-choice. It is your choice. And, you know, some people can bash me for that. I'm not saying that life does not have meaning, but you are not in their circumstances. So who, however the circumstances play out for you, that is your personal choice. I'm glad that Trisha went through this because ultimately it was a gift and a blessing for her. While it was a hard lesson, it did also give her a lot. So for her, it was the right choice to make. For others, it may not be. And I can understand that. And I pass no judgment. If you are finding yourself in a similar situation, as Trisha said, you can reach out to her. She is more than willing. And I will put her links, like I said, in the notes. And if you find yourself in a situation that you just not sure where to go and what to do, find somebody to talk to, a therapist, a friend, find somebody because going through things alone is not necessarily the best way to handle it. Sometimes you need your friends. Sometimes you need a professional. Either way, get the help you need because they're going to help give you answers and navigate. But ultimately, your choices, and understand that, that your choices are your choices. And embrace them, accept them, and empower yourself. So on that note, once again, all the links, like I said, are in the bio or the, the show notes. And I thank you for tuning in as always. And uh, catch you next time. Bye, guys. You're listening to the Better Two Podcast with DM Needham.